This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a unique grading style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. Tonight we apply our patent-pending Stanley rubric to A Bridge Too Far, currently streaming on Netflix. But before we launch into this week's movie, next week we will be continuing Military Month in honor of Memorial Day by covering Glory, starring Denzel Washington, Morgan Freeman, Andre Brar. Matthew Broderick, and Carrie Ewells. You won't want to miss that one, so catch it on Stars or your Stars subscription on Hulu, Prime, or Sling before next week's show. Also, you can still sign up for our weekly newsletter either by the website in the show notes, you can subscribe at the bottom of every page, or you can also email us at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com. And for anyone that signs up this month, you will get access to a few curated lists we have in store that tie into this week's movie. This week, all newsletter recipients... We'll get our list of best big-name actor casts, and next week will be our top Denzel movies to stream. With that, with that, let's get to a movie that you have described as a favorite of yours. Dad, what is your relationship to this movie? When I was, uh, a, well, it would be relatively a kid. I was about 9, 10 years old. I remember watching um, the Johnny Carson show. One of the times I could stay up and watch and. Rex Reed, the critic, was on and with Johnny, and he was talking about reviewing this movie, A Bridge Too Far. And he was just indignant that he had to sit through a three-hour film about war that we lost the battle. And uh, he couldn't understand it. But at that point in time, it intrigued me. I didn't know much about it. It wasn't like I was watching or keeping up on what was going on. When this thing came out on HBO the early days of HBO, I marked it because you used to get a little guide that would tell you what was going to be on HBO through the month. And every time this film was on, I marked it uh, so that I would remember. And I probably watched the film in either parts or completion about five to eight times in that one month and just was enthralled with this movie with the whole idea, the concept. You have to understand that as a kid, I, for whatever reason, was just fascinated by World War II and kind of as have always been an amateur military historian. And so this movie just hit me in so many ways. This movie hit me in so many different ways that it just became something that became so much part of me in my movie-watching makeup that uh, it's it's hard for me to not watch this movie at least every other year. So, I, and this is just a place of ignorance for me. I know you enjoy war films. In fact, last, I guess, November, when we had your birthday, this was one of your requests that we watch war films. Specifically, this one was one that made it onto that list. But is this the one that kind of gave you your love of war films? I think to a large extent. I, I remember also watching Patton. And George C. Scott is, is, is General George Patton. These two films were not that far apart. Two or three years, I think. Uh, seven. Really? 
Yes. Okay. Well, when you're a kid, everything blends together, I guess. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, to a large extent, that's the case. And uh, I, I've always, I mean, as a as a kid, they used to have these weekly magazines on the history of World War II, and I'd buy them and I'd devour them. And so I, I would say probably by seven or eight, I knew as much about World War II as a lot of adults. So this just this film really kind of drew me in. This is one of the few films that I can't say that I ever really watched with my dad. My dad got me involved in several other war films, films that I'm sure we will be doing eventually, such as The Sands of Iwo Jima and Battleground and some of those. But I think I actually got him to watch this film for the first time. That's a little bit interesting. I have to admit a lot of ignorance when it comes to not only this film, but this specific historical, I guess, battle, for lack of a better word. Uh, I wanted to say time period, but that doesn't exactly fit. I was not familiar with the operation. I really, about the point where I turned on the movie over the weekend, realized I really don't know a whole lot of what happened from about D-Day through the end of the war. I mean, there's a lot that's just kind of glossed over when it comes to history class where, yeah, the uh, Allies just invaded Normandy and all of a sudden the war was over and Hitler was killed. I mean, that that's about as quick a, a description as you get often in some of these classes because <laughs> they're, they're trying to fit, you know, uh, yes. how many different things into that. And they focus a lot more on other singular events like the Cuban Missile Crisis is focused on a lot more than like the Battle of the Bulge. But... It's just kind of glossed over. So I have to admit a level of ignorance when it comes to this. And I, I was not familiar with this at all. I definitely, other than the movie and being, I guess, a popular line of description of things. Like, I guess it has become an idiom to itself, a bridge too far in just discussing general terms. I don't, I think it's kind of like how we've used other military terms that have come out of certain periods or wars. Like there's a whole description I remember from my World War One class back in college, like things like over the top coming from World War One. I, I think very much the same way this movie, the title got borrowed to be a description of things or an idiom, a metaphor that people have used. But outside of that, like I had no idea what this was about. I really didn't know who was in it. And I didn't know a lot about this. So for being somebody who at one time was a quote-unquote historian and was at least trying to become a history professor at one point in my early collegiate career, uh, it, it was kind of a little bit flabbergasting that I had no knowledge whatsoever of this. To a large extent, most people have no comprehension. You're pretty accurate. What we're talking about is, is we landed on on June 4th, D-Day, excuse me, June 6th. It was originally June 4th, but they got pushed back to June 6th. And by uh, early April, so eight months later, nine months, or uh, 10 months later, excuse me, we were able to pretty much defeat the, the Germans on the Western Front. And it's films like this and patent are uh, or patent uh, that fill in so much of the gap of what took place during that time frame and what uh, what the history was of the battles. But I'm I'm so much of a, a nerd about this stuff. 
I happen to find there's a new volume. It's a, a thousand, over a thousand pages, the history of the Eastern Front, written by an American who had access to all the archives. I just bought the book over the weekend. In part, he had access to all of the records of uh, how much ammunition, how many tanks, how much uh, material was being shipped by the United States to the Soviets uh, in order for them to uh, have the ability to defeat the Germans on the Eastern Front. And so I'm kind of really looking forward to being able to, to wade into that uh, book that's going to be so heavy that it's going to be constantly a struggle to hold it up while I'm reading in bed at night. So, in essence, Tolstoy's uh, story of the Eastern Front? Uh, yes. All right. Let's get into the context and summary for this movie, give everybody some background. Do you have your plot summary ready? I do. In 1944, as the Western Front is bogged down by supply shortages, the Allies look for a decisive victory to end the war. General Bernard Montgomery proposes Operation Market Garden which envisions 35,000 men being flown and dropped behind enemy lines in the Netherlands. Two divisions of U.S. paratroopers, the 101st and 82nd Airborne, led by Generals Maxwell Taylor, Paul Maxwell, and James Gavin, Ryan O'Neill, are responsible for securing the bridges and roads as far as Nijmegen. The 1st British Airborne Division, under Major General Roy Orquart, played by Sean Connery, is to land near Arnhem, and hold both sides of the bridge. They are reinforced by a brigade of Polish paratroopers under General Stanislav Sosabowski. General Sosabowski, played by Gene Hackman. The Arnhem Bridge is the prime target, as it serves as the last means of escape for the German forces in the Netherlands, and is a direct route to Germany for the Allies. The road to it, however, is only a single highway linking the various key bridges and vehicles and vehicles have to squeeze to the shoulder to pass. The drop proves troublesome, and a battalion led by Lieutenant Colonel John Jack Frost, played by Anthony Hopkins, is able to reach the bridge, but is soon surrounded. 30 Corps, led by Lieutenant Colonel J.O.E. Vanderlohr, played by Michael Kane, finds progress slowed by German resistance and the narrowness of the highway. The race is on to reach the Arnhem Bridge, and save the first British Airborne. Cast for this movie, Richard Attenborough, director. Dirk Bogard, Lieutenant General Frederick Browning. James Kahn, Sergeant Eddie Dohun. Dohun? Dohun? Dohun, you had it right the first time. James Kahn, Sergeant Eddie Dohun. Michael Caine, Lieutenant Colonel Joe Vandeleur. Sean Connery, Major General Robert Urquhart. Edward Fox, Lieutenant General Brian Horrocks. Elliot Gould, Colonel Bobby Stout. Gene Hackman, Major General Stanislaw Sosabowski. Anthony Hopkins, Lieutenant Colonel John Frost. Hardy Kruger, General Ludwig. Lawrence Olivier, Dr. Sponder. Ryan O'Neill, Brigadier General James Gavin. Robert Redford, Major Julian Cook. Maximilian Schell, Lieutenant General Wilhelm Bittrich, Liv Ullman, Kate Terhorst. Recognition for this movie. A primarily only BAFTA-recognized film, it was nominated for Best Film, Editing, Director, and Production Design, and won for Best Score, John Addison, 
who was actually a serving member of the 30 Corps during this battle, supporting actor Edward Fox, cinematography, and sound. Did you know? Did you know? Originally, Sir Richard Attenborough did not want to direct this movie, as he was keen to make Gandhi, eventually in 1982, after Young Winston, 1972. However, major studios were reluctant to finance the movie, so he sought Joseph E. Levine for financing. This movie was part of the agreement in exchange for financing Gandhi. Steve McQueen and Audrey Hepburn were originally cast to play Major Julian Cook and Kate Terhorse, respectively. McQueen only wanted to appear in starring roles, not all-star ensemble projects, and Hepburn's asking salary price was too high. Also, it was reported that Hepburn, who had lived in German-occupied Netherlands during the war and had seen German soldiers shoot down civilians on the street and had friends killed in bombing raids, would find the prospect of reliving her wartime experiences too traumatic. According to the 2008 memoir, My Word is My Bond, Sir Roger Moore was offered the role of Brian Horrocks. He was forced to decline due to a scheduling conflict with The Spy Who Loved Me from 1977 but became available again when the Bond movie was delayed. However, Horrocks had approval over the character and turned Moore down, and the role instead went to Edward Fox. According to the DVD production notes, James Conn agreed to do this movie because of the scene in which he forces a reluctant army surgeon to operate on one of his buddies at gunpoint. He said, When Richard Attenborough came to see me in Los Angeles, he offered me the choice of several roles. I chose the sergeant chiefly for that one scene. Sir Sean Connery initially turned this movie down because he felt it would be glorifying a military disaster. He changed his mind after reading the screenplay. Sir Laurence Olivier showed up on the set wearing an old suit and a pair of battered black shoes. He informed Sir Richard Attenborough that he had been gardening in the shoes for a month so they would look just right for the character, a Dutch farmer and doctor who risks his life to tend the wounded. Did you know this was the first war movie in which actors were put through boot camp prior to filming? Sir Richard Attenborough put many of the extras and soldiers through a mini boot camp and had them housed in a barrack accommodation during filming. Did you know? According to the DVD edition, the real-life Colonel John Frost chided Sir Anthony Hopkins during the filming for running from house to house during the battle for Arnhem. According to Hopkins, Frost told him that a British officer would never have run, but would have shown disdain for enemy fire by walking from place to place. Hopkins claims he tried, but as soon as the firing started, instincts took over and he ran as fast as he could. Did you know? Daphne du Maurier, the widow of Lieutenant General Browning, complained that her husband had been, quote, made the fall guy for the failure of Operation Market Garden by this movie. Browning and the unseen Field Marshal Bernard L. Montgomery, who were shown as responsible for the failure, had died by the time the movie opened in 1977, unlike the other commanders involved. Sir Richard Attenborough defended his depiction of Browning by pointing to the final scene where he says, As you know, I've always thought we were going a bridge too far. Browning did actually say something very similar to this, hence the title of Cornelius Ryan's original book and this movie, but he said it well before the operation started. Did you know? Sir Dirk Bogard's portrayal of General Browning was highly controversial, and several friends of the late general suggested that, had Browning still been alive in 1977, he would have sued director Sir Richard Attenborough and screenwriter William Goldman for libel. Bogard took issue with the final portrayal during the filming, having known Browning personally as he was a member of Field Marshal Bernard L. Montgomery's staff during the war. Although Attenborough publicly took responsibility for the controversy, his relationship with Bogard was never the same again. So, Dad, what is this movie about? It's a historical film portraying the major events of a battle and showing all of the 
uh, ramifications, difficulties, and problems that arise uh, within the course of it and how human perseverance either triumphs or at least makes a positive stand. In many ways, this reminds me kind of your attitude when we had watched Dunkirk from a few years ago, that a lot of films like this take on a survival mode aspect, and that's kind of what I focused on when I, I did mine. Basically, as with most war films, survival and valiance despite ignorant and reckless command. Well, I didn't think about looking up the exact quote, but I'm going to paraphrase Eisenhower, which is, a battle plan is something you spend months preparing and which immediately you throw away when the boots hit the ground. And that's ultimately what happens. No matter how well you plan, there's just going to be things that occur and situations that arise that you don't anticipate. Uh, the battle plan ultimately is just trying to figure out what you can and can't do and, and what is available or what parts may still work and trying to follow a blueprint to try to achieve the ultimate or the goal of the battle. See, but a lot of the notes within this movie would tell you otherwise. When they talk about the fact that they compared it directly to D-Day, that it was six months of planning and preparation, whereas they had a week to do this one, they didn't have enough transports, they didn't want to lose any planes, they hadn't, and this all felt rushed, and that they felt forced. And they were trying to put a square peg in a round hole and make it work. And the fact that they could even somehow resurrect that they were 90% successful, which I would argue they were not, is somewhat of a hubris by a commander who really doesn't have to put his own life on the line. I, I find a lot of these war films, oddly enough, portray those in command very, very poorly. And I have yet to see any World War II film where Montgomery is portrayed well. <laughs> well, you know... Uh, uh, You're the expert, so I will defer, but... Okay, and I agree with you, okay? I, I'm sorry, because I think Montgomery just became the face of what was left of British military history during World War II. I don't think he was that good. I don't think he was that competent. When D-Day was launched... Montgomery was supposed to land at, I think it was uh, the Northern Beaches, which was uh, Gold and Sword Beach. He was supposed to pivot, and he was supposed to take the uh, harbors in the city of Khan in four days. He did not take Khan for, I believe it was five weeks, which ex or slowed the Allied advance tremendously because that was the port that we were going to be using to supply the army going forward because he could not take that city and that that harbor we had to use the uh, artificial harbors at Normandy for weeks afterwards which only caused slow uh, supply lines especially fuel because it takes what is it I think it was two miles to the gallon to drive a Sherman tank. You know, used, you know, 55-gallon drum would fill one Sherman tank to run for a day. And, uh, you know, it took a ton of material. And quite frankly, Patton so outperformed Montgomery that Montgomery complained and cajoled and whined 
and pretty much forced Churchill into pushing for this operation. I think this 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 battle was a direct result of the failure of Montgomery to obtain his objectives at D-Day and the fact that he was so outshone by Patton during the uh, the early battles that he came up with this bold plan that almost seems reckless in retrospect. I think it was reckless in um, present day, at least. That's how the film presents it. Not to mention the fact that even the editor, if you think we're really editorializing, folks, there is a line in the movie where the Germans are talking about, oh, even Eisenhower wouldn't be that stupid to give Monty command. <laughs> yes. All right, let's move into the film portions of this, though. I, I have a feeling that we could focus a lot on the historical aspects. But who for you in a film that felt like a lot of cameos as a part as opposed to any one starring role, who was your best performer? Gene Hackman as General Sasabowski, because the fact is, is I know for a fact in watching interviews that he did, he spent approximately six weeks working with a linguist to hone and perfect the accent so that it was a Polish accent. Um, And he had it down pat. And he became the conscience of the film. You know, and everybody else is towing the line. He's the one who's going, you know, this is stupid. Tell tell General, or, uh, General Montgomery that uh, if my troops are slaughtered. I mean, he was constantly making these comments. Your Polish sounds like they should have some vodka. <laughs> anyway, uh, well, it's bourbon tonight anyway. As it is every week. No, I completely and 100% agree. It's hard when you've seen Welcome to Mooseport to remember sometimes how good (laughs) Gene Hackman could be in the 70s. Yes. But honestly, like every time he's on screen, he just blows it away. Ah, I, I, I can't speak highly enough in in such rare moments, because it's not like anybody I, I said. There are whole sections of the movie that people aren't in or aren't starring, and it's not like anybody had one great, big, uh, juicy part that they were the lead in this movie. I mean, you know you have an all-star cast and a a complete ensemble movie when Robert Redford doesn't even show up for the first two hours of your movie. In 1977. (laughs) Yes. I, I did a double take to even figure out who Lawrence Olivier was playing. Like, I didn't recognize him until literally the last half an hour of the movie. So that's what we're talking about. And yet, Hackman comes in with, like, just fists flying from the first moment he's on screen. And there are going to be some lines that I have for nominees, not in a line, or excuse me, in a movie that isn't heavy with the lines, but he had a couple of really good ones. And he just made the most of that part. I think he was uh, charismatic. He was powerful. He, as you put it, was the moral center on this. But I thought he was on a complete heat check in this movie, and he just imbues presence, gravitas, moral certainty, and ambiguity, and he's the most complex character in this story outside of maybe Browning. Okay, so then who was your best secondary performer? Uh, I went back and forth, so I just gave it a tie, because I can. I have Sean Connery and Richard Attenborough. Sean Connery 
did a wonderful job of trying to portray somebody who was trying to hold it together, even though everything was going off and going wrong around him. And Richard Attenborough was a director who managed to keep everything moving and to keep this wide ensemble cast, this whole conglomerate of things and people and scenes and such moving in the right direction. An almost Herculean task to try to keep the casts moving and keep things going and still staying on schedule and on budget. I think if I remember reading this correctly, there were or at least one of the bridge scenes where I think they take the one at Nijmegen uh, had to be filmed between like the hours of like 9 and 3 p.m. or something like that. And so otherwise they were going to get into complete cost overruns that would have been like an extra million dollars tacked onto the film. So just imagine doing all of that with the boat crossing and the explosions and everything else being set up and doing that in less than six hours. I mean, that is telling as to how much you have to go to for scale. And I got to imagine that they really spared no expense when it comes to the explosions and the set design for a lot of this stuff, because it's almost to the point of obscenity how many freaking explosions are in here. I started to get flashbacks to Apocalypse Now. <laughs> Connery does stick out a little bit, I guess, as the only other character with a lot of great speaking parts in this one, as opposed to just playing a certain character and playing it a certain way. And he does have that nice ending scene. But while I appreciate the comments on Attenborough, I thought there was something else that was kind of the glue to this movie. And so I went with John Addison, the composer. I would have nominated him before I knew that he was at Market Garden in 30 Core, but that just adds a whole other layer to me. I love the driving heartbeat scores that mark the emotional and transitional parts of this movie. But the biggest part of this was not only to convey tone where the score is beating and triumphant in the first part while getting progressively sadder and dour as the dead pile up in Arnhem, but to stitch together a lot of action and military scenes where there isn't a lot of great transition. There are a lot of scenes that have no great connective tissue except that the score transitions between one to the other and gives you a tone throughout all of this. Otherwise, it would just be a collection of misplaced scenes that you somehow would be putting together because there isn't like a narrative exposition that carries out through the rest of this film. There's just that driving score that, again, is upbeat towards the beginning and progressively gets more sour as we go through the film, mirroring what's going on with the action. For me, the score is the thing that really holds this together. Several good points. I agree the, the score was exceptional, and it did, did add a lot to the ultimate film. Well, and I think the biggest thing to me when it comes to score sometimes, and I love scores that end up giving me those emotional moments that really hammer home when I'm supposed to have a reaction to something. I know most people think that's cheap and overly manipulative. I don't. I actually feel the other way. I, I like when a movie does that to me. But that one line of music, I was humming it for like three days and couldn't get it out. There's like that jingle quality to it in the middle of this film. And if you've seen it, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But that's when you know you have something is when you have that one few set of notes like Jaws or Star Wars or whatever else. You can just 
start humming it in your head. And that's when you have a really well-conceived and well-received score. What did you have for most uh, charismatic? I had Robert Redford. And it's just simply because Robert Redford is a gifted movie star who has good quality looks and I just enjoy Robert Redford. And this is going back to any of our other episodes that have had Robert Redford in them before. I just enjoy Robert Redford and there doesn't have to be anything more to that in Charismatic because it's not like anybody was on screen for a ton of time. You probably could have picked several characters, but I'll just go with one of my favorites. Boy, this is starting to sound like a man crush. Is there a problem with me having a man crush on Paul Newman and Robert Redford? No, no, that's perfectly fine. So my most uh, charismatic uh, award goes to somebody who I felt played a nuanced part. It was one of the few nuanced parts in this film where he has an air of overconfidence, almost arrogance when he starts. And by the end, he has a complete air of defeat and almost portrays it as being, you know, you could just see the look on his face of what the hell happened. This is not the way it's supposed to be. And that's our current 2021 Best Actor Award winner, Sir Anthony Hopkins. Okay, is it Anthony or I've heard it more pronounced by the pretentious, but Anthony. Well, I think if you're in England, it's Anthony. And if you're in the United States, it's Anthony. Well, he does not reside here. And that's why he didn't accept his best actor. (laughs) Well, he does. He does have a house in California, but he also has a house in Wales. And he splits his time. Whichever he wants to ride out the pandemic with is fine by me. Just his portrayal alone in Silence of the Lambs is enough to put him on the Pantheon. All right, so let's move into scenes then. I only had a few select ones in here. I didn't want to overdo it because this is a longer film with some very big set pieces. But what do you have down as your first nominee? James Caan saves the officer where he drives the Jeep, goes and picks up his uh, platoon leader and uh, has to dodge through German lines to get to a field hospital and then draw a gun to get the uh, uh, surgeon to even look at him and then uh, basically saves his life. Yeah, I had that one as uh, significant for me as well. For the reasons that Khan picked it, you can definitely tell why. This is a very heroic-like character who gets a lot of the benefits of the doubt after the fact. For sticking up a superior officer and doing it for a cause of, well, yes, I know this guy, but also I guaranteed he wasn't going to die, that sort of thing, it it certainly heightens that scene. And it's a really good like one or two scene punch for somebody who's not in the movie very much. I had a couple of scenes before that, and we kind of referenced them originally in our best performer list. But uh, the first one I had down was uh, Sosabowski questioning the plans. When he walks over to the plan commander and, oh, I was just trying to figure out which side you were on. I mean, it's (laughs) so classic. And he does it with such vigor that it's not seen as snide, but it's incredibly derisive. 
I don't know. He he somehow played or uh, straddled that line extremely well, and I, I just love the way that he was able to question authority. I think in like at least two or three different occasions, without seemingly going over the the tipping point, where it would have been out and out insubordination. Yes. The other one I had, it was just something that I found remarkable in how they filmed it, because a lot of the scenes for historical accuracy and some of the other things were one of the notable things among a lot of the critics at the time. But I loved the first-person paratrooping scenes that they had in there, just from a cinematography standpoint. It felt very documentarian-like. And for as much as we praise something like Saving Private Ryan and being on the beaches at Normandy and some of those first-person aspects, I really appreciated being able to take me into kind of the first-person visual of what it would be like to jump out of one of those planes. And then my next thought was a similar one that you've conveyed multiple times over. How the hell did my grandfather jump out of one of those? (laughs) Yes, and I have a certain strong proclivity towards the 101st Airborne because my dad was in the 101st Airborne. So he was a paratrooper. He was trained as a paratrooper. And I cannot, in my wildest dreams, picture him jumping out of a plane. This is a man who is so afraid of heights that uh, we turned around and went home when we got to the Mackinac Bridge <laughs> because it was too high. He was not driving over it. <laughs> so anyway. So what's the next one you had down? Uh, landing in Arnhem, and that's, you know, just the sheer confusion, trying to get everybody together, trying to get to the scenes. The Jeeps don't work or have, aren't there. The uh, uh, communications are falling apart. Everything. And Sean Connery's trying to put together something that will work so that he can uh, uh, try to obtain his uh, his objectives. Yeah, and I think there are a couple of really good lines that I'm going to nominate for best lines here in or after the break that uh, really highlight or hit home on that scene. But it is one of the stronger Connery scenes. And realistically, whenever he does pop up, he does show out in a, in a few ways during this movie. The next one I want to go with is Liberation. And it's where they're going through the towns of, I guess, the Dutch citizens. And I guess my thought while watching that Aside from the joke of, yeah, have you ever been liberated? Well, I've been divorced twice. Outside of that, (laughs) it just struck me a little bit how much being liberated in that sense would have meant. And I I guess maybe it it was something of a a dawning factor onto me that this made it very apparent in a way that I hadn't thought about it before. So I just really appreciated how front and center they made that note because i mean we've seen some other liberation moments in in these war films but none of them have really ever struck home in in this way that driving through and saving these towns that were under this oppressive regime have made such an impression on me before that this like this has well and i'll just tell this little anecdote 1994 I go with your mother back to visit her host family in Germany because she was an exchange student in high school in Germany. And we go to Aachen and then we go up to Holland or to the Dutch border into Holland, the Netherlands. We go into a store 
And your mother and Ursel, her host mother, are speaking in German. They speak to the cashier in German who answers in German. And she's cold. She's not at all friendly in any way. They walk out, leave me. I'm going to buy my what I'm buying, and I'm standing. And so she starts speaking to me in German. And I said, stop. I can't speak German. Do you know English? Oh, she immediately switches to English. Her whole face lights up. She is so just absolutely warm and wonderful and going on and on and on about how, you know, oh, I always wanted to go to America and I've been studying English for eight years and on and on and on. So I walk out of there and I go up to uh, Chris and I said, are the Dutch still pissed off about World War II? She's, oh, no, that's so long ago. There's no, Ursula turns says, oh, yes, yes. The Germans cannot come into Holland at all without being treated nastily, even today. And so that whole scene still shows exactly the feeling that was there, the liberation, the hatred that had existed under occupation, and how it's permeated throughout Europe. I think even to some extent yet to this day, it's, it's starting to dissipate as that generation dies off, but it's not, it's still something that's there. And I, I, I think that in some parts, there's a, still a resentment towards Germany over the uh, whole war. Did you have another scene, sir? Oh, I have a ton of them. So returning to see General Browning, the, the geese squawking, reminding Urquhart uh, of... Uh, the lunatics escaping and laughing at him. I have the 101st Airborne uh, trying to take the Sun Bridge and uh, the scene where, you know, it's blown up and Elliot Gold runs up and he looks and he turns and looks into the camera and goes, shit. <laughs> that, that always to me is like a, that sums up so much of uh, war. Well, I, I'll just take a quick pause because I had building the bridge as uh, a nominee for me. I just got a, a bigger appreciation for what they're trying to do because it doesn't seem like much when I've never been around the military. I have no idea how military personnel or stuff moves. And rivers always present this big challenge when it comes to military films. And now I think I get it a little bit more for the level of what they had to do to build that one bridge in order for shit to cross over there. I mean, that was quite extensive and extraordinary, the lengths that they had to go through to try and put that together. So I, it was another one of these that's kind of maybe a forgotten about thing because it's kind of a sequential process-driven scene, much in the same way that maybe the paratrooping thing was. But it, it gives me a different appreciation for the amount of skill and difficulty that some of this had to go through. Well, there's a reason why always the top West Point graduates went into the Army Corps of Engineers, because they wanted the smartest to be able to do that kind of stuff. So the other one that I had here is Robert Redford in Crossing the River. Yeah, I had that one too. Hail Mary full of grace through the entire trip. Well, but even before that, I had them waiting for the boats and him cracking jokes and it's building this kind of ticking clock in the way that it's paced because, you know, all right, our takeoff is now eight o'clock and then it's 10 o'clock and then it's 
noon and then it's one o'clock and then the boats finally arrive and there's this giant mad dash. And I think it built a great sense of pressure on the whole thing that really was captured throughout that where, where you went with the, them actually crossing the river. The scene that uh, I also have here is the, what I consider the summary scene, more or less, the kind of the climax where they realize that the plan has failed. It's the scene on the church steeple. Gene Hackman's there, Bogart's there, O'Neill is there, you know, and they're all basically saying, well, I guess this is it. We need to pull them out. And, uh, they start talking about all the things that went wrong and why that plan didn't succeed in full. And to me, that's a climactic scene because it's at that point that they realize ultimately the title of the movie, which is We Went a Bridge Too Far. Well, I actually put the final climax being that conversation Browning has with Urquhart that there's such a condescension almost and an arrogance that, no, we didn't screw up. You may have lost a lot of guys, but we still succeeded for the most part. And he's looking at it, I lost, you know, 80% of my guys. How can you call that a 90% victory? There's just no way. We got creamed. And he just looks at him, well, you know, that was potentially built into the plan that you were expendable. And just the the arrogance of that, it it just... (laughs) And then to basically end with silence as the credits come up right after that, I just thought was a a well way of ending the point. I know that we went through that there was criticism for Attenborough and how he depicted this. And if this wasn't how it went, then there should have been criticism because, God dang it, he editorialized. I think to a large extent that's exactly what took place. They can say what they want, but I think that's exactly what occurred. Or pretty close, anyway. All right, so then what was your favorite scene? Uh, The church steeple, because of that very climax. I think that the scene that you've talked about with Browning and Urquhart was more a summary of where things were. You kind of knew at that point in time what had taken place. Um, It kind of, like, brought it to a conclusion. It kind of... This is ultimately what happened, but it's that scene on the church steeple where they realize what had happened and that they had failed. That, to me, is the pivotal scene. That's both my favorite scene and my most indelible. If I may just nitpick a little bit on that, I think the way that that ends and that they all take some level of luck or responsibility with that gives them too much ambiguity as somewhat of an out where I didn't think that for where this was editorializing or leading it, when you're talking about how much they did to emphasize in the early going, how poorly planned and organized this whole thing was, and then they end on that condescension, that that scene allows for some level of, well, it may not have been everybody's fault or a lack of planning or anything else. It simply could have just been that the circumstances didn't end up being right. And I think that does a disservice to where they were leading the movie. And that's why I think the climactic scene ends up being that one where Browning essentially thumbs his nose at the guys serving under him. And I, I just, it, it was the lasting impression for me. That's, that scene is my 
most indelible moment because I think that's the mark on what this film is and why they ended up waiting to use that line of the title or work it in at the last moment. But favorite scene for me, and I thought it was just a great scene and impactful and made James Caan look probably the most heroic he's ever been in movies, and that's him holding up the medical examiner or the doctor. And I I just liked the way that that was because there was such a determination and perseverance in how that was done that it, it just seemed like he was the guy who was doing everything against odds. And so because of that, it's just one of the favorite moments, I guess, if you will. By the way, just as an aside, I did not know that uh, Browning in real life had been married to Daphne de Mornier. And if you were familiar with her work, she did her, one of her most famous books is the only film that Alfred Hitchcock won best director for Rebecca. Yes. Yes. I'm sure we have some big things planning wise for that at some point but let's take a quick break and we'll be right back all right welcome back thank you for rejoining us dad do we have anyone to remember this week oh we have a uh, icon of theater film and television uh norman lloyd passed at age 106 damn Yes. Uh, Norman Lloyd uh, started out in the 1930s with different theater repertory companies. Ultimately, he was added to the Mercury Theater, uh, Orson Welles' group, and then came with Welles and the Mercury Theater to Hollywood. He was cast in 1944 to play a Nazi agent in a Alfred Hitchcock film, Saboteur. Um, that was his first film. He later went on to play the uh, heavy in another Hitchcock thriller, Spellbound, with Gregory Peck and Ingrid Bergman, and ended up playing several different parts in the Alfred Hitchcock Presents. He uh, was in the film Limelight, which was a Charlie Chaplin film from the night or from nineteen fifty-two. He also played a part in Dead Poet Society in 1989 with Robin Williams. He was in The Age of Innocence. He was port, or he was uh, cast to star as uh, Dr. Auchlander uh, in the TV show St. Elsewhere, so a lot of people more of my generation are familiar with him as a result. But uh, very long association in theater. Interesting, he married another an actress they, uh, unlike most in Hollywood, managed to stay married from 1936 until her death in 2011. Very, very interesting. I remember watching, not too long ago, I believe with you, Saboteur, because it was on um, Turner uh, Movies, and uh, they came out and said, well... Norman Lloyd is still around. He was like, I think at the time was like 104 or 105. And I was shocked because I just never thought he would still be alive at that point in time. But he was. A lot of people were aware. His last film was in Trainwreck because somehow or another, he developed a close relationship with Amy Schumer. And so she wrote a part for in that film 
specifically for him to appear in at age 100. Certainly an extraordinary life and career. Passes away at 106. Titan of the industry. All right, let's move on to best funniest lines. Dad, what do you got down? <laughs> I always go back to Elliot Gould. Shit. That's, that's keep, the whole line? That's the whole line. It's just, that's the line. He's trying to figure out, how, you know, what's going to happen. They blow up the bridge. He runs up. He looks. Everybody's waiting. He just turns around, looks in the camera, and says, shit. And there are certain times and certain events in your life where there's just certain words that you have to use. That's one of them. You know, you can get fired by your or fired by your boss and you can say all kinds of, oh, that was unpleasant or that was terrible or I didn't. No, 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 no. Sometimes in your life, the word fuck is the only word that really sums up what's going on. In this particular case, it was shit. Elliot Gould has a great way of delivering curse words that are funny and meaningful and put a smile on your face. No further than uh, a story I will eventually tell or anecdote uh, about Ocean's Eleven, but you'll have to wait for that episode. As it stands, however, I'll just say Risky Business would be a very different movie if the line was What the Fudge? <laughs> yes. All right. So my first one up then would be, sir, offers mug of tea. Major General Urquhart, Hancock, I've got lunatics laughing at me from the woods. My original plan has been scuppered now that the jeeps haven't arrived. My communications are completely broken down. Do you really believe any of that can be helped by a cup of tea? Couldn't hurt, sir. Uh, General Browning, I've been on to Monty. He's very proud and pleased. Urquhart, pleased? Browning, of course, he thinks Market Garden was 90% a success or successful. Arkward, well, what do you think? Browning, well, as you know, I always felt we tried to go a bridge too far. Yeah, I had a little bit leading into that. Hello, Roy, how are you? I'm not sure I'll know for a while, but I'm sorry about how it turned out. You did all you could. Yes, but did everyone else? They've got a bed upstairs for you if you want it. I took 10,000 men into Arnhem. I've come out with less than two. I don't feel much like sleeping. I've just been on to Monty. And then it leads into yours. I just think it provides a fuller context of that conversation because there's a lot of things leading into that where he's not looking for that conflict until it actually comes that Browning is thumbing his nose at him. And it really sets up that last piece. But the only other nominee I had was between Browning and Sosabowski. Only the weather can stop us now. Sosabowski. Weather? Christus. General Browning, what of the Germans? Don't you think if we know Arnhem is so critical to their safety that they might know it too? Now look here. The few troops in the area are second class. They're not frontline caliber. Not at all. Do you understand? I think you ought to have a little more faith in Montgomery's intelligence reports, you know? He's done pretty well for us in the last three or four years. I will tell you the extent of my faith. I am thinking of asking for a letter from you stating that I was forced to act under your orders in case my men are massacred. I see. I do see. Do you wish such a letter? No. No, of course not. In the case of massacre, what difference will it make? <laughs> 
General Gavin, what's the best way to take a bridge? Julian Cook, both ends at once. Gavin, I'm sending two companies across the river by boat. I need a man with very special qualities to lead. Go on, sir. He's got to be tough enough to do it, and he's got to be experienced enough to do it. Plus one more thing. He's got to be dumb enough to do it. Start getting ready. Well, someone's come up with a real nightmare. A real nightmare. I could just see that. I, actually, since then, I've read a lot more about General Gavin. Gavin served as a military um, advisor for the film. And uh, General Gavin absolutely despised Ryan O'Neill. <laughs> thought that Ryan O'Neill was not type of person that he wanted portraying him. He thought he was much too prissy, not nearly tough enough, and uh, was not pleased by the selection of, of uh, actors. But do you have anything else? No, I don't have anything left. That was all I had. Do you have any others? Colonel Frost. Hello, Harry. Major uh, Carlisle. Hello, Johnny. Frost. You know, Harry, I always wanted to ask you, but didn't because I knew you so very much wanted me to. But why do you always carry that umbrella? Memory. Bad memory. Never could remember the password. Knew no Jerry would carry one. Had to prove I was an Englishman, you see. And then he dies. So let's leave it at that because ultimately I think that's the memory in a lot of these battles we should be carrying away. Fair enough. Let's go to the Stanley rubric. Legacy is the first one up. As we started last week, I am now putting at least on my list a two-tiered test, but I do not know or necessarily <laughs> require, was the word I was looking for, require you to follow the same scoring system. But is this anywhere in the first 10, 20, 25 war movies ever mentioned? I mean, no. we've done a bunch of them. Bridge Over the River Kwai... Sands of Iwo Jima, Longest Day. I mean, this thing is almost never talked about other than the name. And that's more of, a, again, a metaphor used than anything else. I, I don't see this as being a huge legacy when it comes to critics. Again, the reviews are middling at best. I think the scores on like Rotten Tomatoes of the aggregates are like 60, 64. The Metacritic scores are pretty much in the same range, even coming to now. It's not like this thing is uh, warmed or appreciated over time. I mean, it kind of got mixed reviews at the time itself too, but I'll save that for impact significance. So all of these people were already big stars. That's why they were attached to the film. I, I don't know. I, I was grasping at straws for a lot of things just to come up with a few points here or there. I will give it some credit for its accurate depiction and portrayals. I just don't think this movie moved the needle in any significant way for either the industry or the public. I gave it a two for the industry in making it because of some of the accuracy and some of the things that they did moving the ball on war films and kind of linking it to the next generation of them. But this is right before we got into some of the key Vietnam films, which took on a much different tone and tenor. 
because this is only a couple of years before Apocalypse Now. And I gave it a one for social impact. So three overall. I went with a 7.5. And I'm going to tell you why. Because... I wish you would. (laughs) All right. Well, good. It's kind of the point of the, the show. Well, yeah. Other than your head. Anyway, the point is, is that this is the first war film that I really remember where the uh, the good guys lost. And it showed all... I mean, there's a reason why the military uses the terms snafu and fubu. Because that's the way things were done. Uh, snafu, I thought it was fubar. Or fubar, excuse me. Uh, snafu and fubar. Yeah, fubu is a TV app. And for those of you who don't know the, the the anacronym snafu, it's situation normal all fucked up, or uh, or fubar, which is fucked up beyond all recognition. And those were terms that were used by the military or by soldiers because that's kind of the world they lived in. And the reason I went with a higher number is that very reason. I think this is the first war film, specifically a World War II film, that showed the the actual horrors of it the the you know the loss you know you you come in with high expectations you leave with your tail between your legs or dead or wounded and and such i just didn't remember a film to that extent it wasn't all glory there was a realistic aspect to it i think this film to some extent laid the groundwork that allowed the more realistic films of the 1970s and 80s, and even into the 90s. This is a film you haven't seen, and I know that for a fact, but 1930s, All Quiet on the Western Front, uh, did everything this film did much better many, many, many years before this. So this was not the first, it was not any significant marker, it laid down the effects, it had most of its main cast killed off, Spoiler alert for a movie that's uh, almost, what, 90-some years old? But, yeah, just about everybody dies in the movie by the end of it. And I I just don't see that as a a credible argument, especially for a seven and a half. Oh, and, yeah, because, of course, this 1930s film had so much impact it changed all of movies through the 1940s, 50s, and 60s. Well, it would have had John Wayne not, like, made every film into a heroic propaganda for uh, conservatism. <laughs> well, that's the whole point of what I'm making, which is, you know, fine, that movie may have done it, but it had no legacy because it didn't ultimately change anything. I think this film at least started the path towards realistically looking at war as being something that was not glory as we do that film next week. I, I would argue it even still as far as film goes and the rest of it, you're looking more at the effects of filmmakers coming out of Vietnam. Most of the guys making these films were not Richard Attenborough, but rather, let's say, for example, because I would even argue like The Great Escape, there are several people that die. That's ultimately a mission that fails, although a few people escape. But a lot of those guys are killed. Like, that came before this movie. It was another Richard Attenborough film. But it was different. The overall tenor of that film was completely different. It still portrayed aspects of uh, of those in the battle as being heroic instead of tragic figures. 
That's the difference. And fine, I'll go to the hill and, and die for this one. I say 7.5 and that's it. Yeah. Why did you do that one? I don't know. I'll stick with 7.5 because I really believe that ultimately that's the legacy. I thought I was generous on the three, but okay. That is your right to do so, sir. All right, so impact significance. I'll let you go first on this one then. I went with a 3.5 because, you know, I love this film, but I think I'm probably one of the few because most people, if you mention this film, they recognize it, the name, but they've never seen it. They know nothing about it. If you're lucky, they know something about Op Operation Market Garden. That's all. I don't think it really had any major impact other than it was a good film when it was out, and I think it did fairly well. I mean, it was something that was popular on HBO when I, you know, it was about the time HBO started coming in and that type of deal, but that's about it. Its box office receipts are terribly low. Its critic scores were middling. It really had no general impact in the awards conversation other than the British awards, which obviously wanted to recognize a British-made film with a bunch of really prominent British actors in it. I went with a two because it's one for each point on the <laughs> scale for both tiers on this one for me. Again, I think at best it made a small ripple, but nothing significant. This isn't a film that most people know or think of. So between us, that's going to be a 2.75. I forgot to mention 5.25 between us on your uh, holding firm on 7.5. All right. So then we get to novelty. And again, I, other than the advanced tech for explosions, and again, I felt they were somewhat obscene at certain points. Like we get it. Shells were going everywhere. There was a bunch of stuff, but like, these fireballs were not necessarily part of all of this, and that's kind of the Hollywood portion of it. I, I thought it got beyond a point where it needed to go, but this really, and I kept thinking of it all throughout the movie. This is the longest day, 15 years later, just as long, Basically the same type of archetype with a bunch of star-studded cast stitched together through certain battle sequences or scenes where each one gets their starring role for about 15 or 20 minutes. And it's a good but not necessarily great movie. I just felt it really picked up and was essentially Longest Day Part 2. Well, you uh, are aware of who wrote the book The Longest Day. Same guy. Yes. That's why this film was made. The only other point I could give this as far as credibility is that they did bring on some rather significant military advisors, uh, being most of the guys who are featured in this film, the actual characters. Uh, let's see here. Urquhart, Frost, Vandeleur, Gavin, and Horrocks all were military consultants on the film. Yes. So I, I, I went with a two. Uh, I went with a four. Simply because the ensemble cast, you know, the, the logic of this was clear, which is convince these guys they can come in in two, three days, do their parts. You know, they can make a few bucks here. You put in some stars, you move on to the next part, you piece it all together. It's, it's kind of formulaic. 
it had not been done that many times. Longest day was was one of the keys, and really, it hasn't been done a lot since that I can think of. No, because even like Saving Private Ryan has a narrative to it, as opposed to like telling about a particular battle. Uh, I think that something like, and I've never seen the movie, but Midway was kind of like this. If if my impression of what I get it from uh, what I know of the film was kind of similar, that it just kind of tells the two that I would mark as similar enough that you could kind of say they were the more modern version of this were uh, Pearl Harbor, the Josh Hartnett Ben Affleck film from I think 2001, which was like the 60th anniversary movie, and then uh, a few years ago, what I thought was the best picture of that that year, Dunkirk, which I think does a better once you understand the plot devising job of telling that story of a quote unquote battle, but it's not really a battle because there's really nothing firing or like gunfire going on from them itself. So it, it stuck out to me a little bit more than something like this would have at the time. But I think those are probably the only two main examples that I could give. Yeah. And, and, and with regard to the, and I assume that by midway you're referring to the more recent Woody Harrelson. No, I think the, the Gregory Peck version. It's not Gregory Peck, it's Henry Fonda. Is it? Okay. Yep, Henry Fonda and uh, Charlton Heston. Um, I thought that movie, because it's telling the tale of a specific battle, was more of a conglomeration of scenes like this. It was, and I and that's another film that I really enjoy a lot. Probably all things that we're going to be covering on this show at some point. Um, we have plenty of them to go through. But classicness, unless you have something more to add on novelty, uh, that was a no. three between us. But classicness, I've always said I started an eight, and then I either work my way back or I work my way up. And if it is to be believed, and I think you and I, for all intents and purposes, basically understand that the Browning and Monty scapegoating that goes on in this movie is fairly accurate, or at least we accept that to be the correct version of things. Outside of that, I didn't really have anything to take off of points with. And as far as the level of historical and military accuracy that went on for this film, I think some films get way overknocked for their inadherence to historical accuracy sometimes. See Braveheart. But to me, just because they went out of their way to really get the military advisory on this one correct, uh, I'll give it an extra point boost. So I went with a nine. I went with an eight because I started with an eight, and that's where I stayed with an eight. I think they did a very good job of portraying the stupidity, the waste that is war. And I didn't see anything that was cringeworthy but I also didn't see anything that was overly great uh, other than a few of the performances may have. So I may have thought about going up to an 8.5, but I'll just stick with the eight that I assigned. That's fair. Rewatchability. I know this is going to be a little bit higher on your score, but uh, I start usually at a five at the median point. And there isn't anything that would make me or deter me other than maybe the length but you said on the end of last week's show that this was kind of a quick three hours. And even though I watched it in parts, for the most part, the first 
eh, two and a half hours is actually pretty quick. It, it goes by fairly easily and it's digestible. I thought the last half hour kind of dragged a little bit, but because it really didn't play out like a, a full three hours or that um, it uh, was slow or had one of those big elongated scenes that was artistic but really didn't need to be there, uh, I'll go with a 5.5. I'm just going to say this, that I don't do this very often. If It is your right to do so. Well, this is a film that when it's on, I will sit and watch it. If it's for 10 minutes or if it's for two hours. This is a 10 to me. I, I don't know why this, this film speaks to me. It just brings up what is all the aspects. The heroicism, the sacrifice, the stupidity, the waste. I mean, this is the yin and the yang of what is war. And uh, I'll sit and watch this. And I can sit and watch it for the story. I can sit and watch it for the performance. So I can sit and just watch Anthony Hopkins and his performance. I can sit and watch for just the historical aspects of stuff that comes out that I didn't remember or think about or parts of the battle that I hadn't uh, considered or thought about. So it's a 10 for me. I don't give out 10s very often, but this is one of them. That's fair. So I didn't give an average for the last couple of them, and uh, I'll just do a recap here in a second. But uh, we had 88% for Google users, 86% for Rotten Tomato users as far as audience score, giving an extra 8.7 to the movie. All right, so that was a 5.25 for Legacy, 2.75 between us for Impact Significance, 3 for Novelty, 8.5 for Classicness, 7.75 for Rewatchability, and an 8.7 for Audience Score, giving us a final total of 35.95, which would put it in between The Help and Zodiac on the list. Okay. Which seems, yeah, I, I could buy that. I'm I'm not going to have a problem with its placing in the list, but I did enjoy getting to experience this one for the first time, and so I know this is one of your favorites. It was, frankly, this month is a uh, probably a list of favorites for you in some capacity or another. But uh, let's get to remaining questions. Did you have any? Not really. <laughs> I mean, to me, you know, this is uh, this is my wheelhouse. This is how I spend my free time is looking and thinking about this. If I had any remaining questions, I would have researched them. Yeah, I think for me, I, I had two, but the first one is just purely rhetorical because I don't think you could have really answered it. It's only could be asked of the people that are no longer able to be asked of. If you didn't have the proper equipment to carry out the mission, why would everyone sign off on allowing this to go forward? I mean, it, it's the obvious question from the outset. And it's kind of why probably Gene Hackman's character ends up being as important as it is to, I guess, as you put it, the moral of this story. Because it, it highlights exactly the fallacy or the, the foolhardiness of going forward or trying to push for this. When I was in college, my advisor, who also taught government at Boyd College, Warner Mills, told us that there was a famous book that was written by a professor at Harvard University. What he did was is he looked at two events 
and he studied them and he wrote about them and he interviewed the people. And it was what was different between the Kennedy administration's decision on the Bay of Pigs and what was their decision on the Cuban Missile Crisis. And he coined the term, was, the name of the professor was Graham Allison, groupthink, which is where a group of people become isolated. And because they become isolated, one idea ends up becoming where they convince each other of the value, the effectiveness, the validity of the idea. And so everybody buys in. Whereas in the Cuban Missile Crisis, Kennedy had outside advisors who were continually pointing and going, is that logical? Are you sure about that? Does that make sense? And it makes a difference. I think in large part, Operation Market Garden, because of the fact that it was Churchill pushing and Montgomery and where things were in the war and such, there's a large portion of groupthink that occurred in this, where they convinced themselves of the infallibility of the plan. And ultimately, Montgomery, who was the ultimate in face-saving, um, said, well, I was 90% effective, so therefore it's a win. 8,000 of my troops are casualties, but, uh, oh, well, that's war. Yeah. I mean, we revere Grant for doing that, and we're giving Monty the shaft for it, but I think there's a major difference between the two when it comes to military strategy as far as this, because this was entirely unnecessary, whereas Grant, in some ways, in order to shorten and win the war, had to do what he had to do. At least that's my feeling, and that leads me into the other question I had, and it's simply, and I'll ask you to be the historian here for a second and it would just be the general accepted opinion of montgomery not necessarily your own but i i just have a certain ignorance level when it comes to him as a commander and it goes back to the question i asked before is there a generally positive feeling of montgomery that i haven't gotten from any cinematic portrayal okay in britain montgomery is he is a hero but they've had so many f flawed military heroes in British history. And the name of the general slips my mind at the moment. The British general in command at the Battle of the Somme, who basically... Yeah. Uh, who basically I can't remember either. But. Yeah, just sent a, uh, a million men <laughs> to be casualties over a two-week period because... He figured if we just overwhelm them, eventually they'll cave. I think it was 100,000, but the point still stands because that's still a significant number. I, I, but a million might be a little too high. Yeah, I can't remember. The World War One is one of the gaps in my knowledge of military history, and I've tried to rectify it, but trying to find a few volumes that help fill in some of the gaps have been a little difficult. I had a really good course in uh, college on it that helped, but even then, as far as the military aspect, it's kind of hit or miss sometimes. Uh, if you want a good example of cinematic groupthink, or at least a comedic version, another Stanley Kubrick film, Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Love the Bomb. Pretty good one on that one. But any last thoughts for the week? By the way, I just uh, happened to look it up. It's General Haig, Earl Haig. Ah who's still revered in Britain for whatever reason. But no, next week is another area of uh, 
significant interest to me is which is the American Civil War. And um, I think I've been to something like 24 different Civil War battlefields that are maintained by the National Park Service. And uh, every time I have an opportunity, I try to get to one. So it, it's a uh, interesting story. It's something that I hope people appreciate. And uh, I, I, I really enjoyed the film when it was released and uh, thought that uh, I'm looking forward to doing it next week. I have never seen the film in total, and I'm looking forward to seeing that for the first time. This is the, if I remember right, or memory serves me, I believe this is the first one where Denzel won an Oscar. I think he's got two. This is the one he won for Best Supporting. Well, this is my life. It always will be. There's nothing else. Just us, and the microphones, and those wonderful people out there in the dark. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Next week, we will be featuring Glory, starring Denzel Washington, Morgan Freeman, and Matthew Broderick, currently streaming on Stars or your Stars Premium subscription through Hulu, Prime, or Sling. You won't want to miss that one. Please like, follow, review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that you can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com, find us on Instagram at gmotepodcast, or find Dana or I on Twitter at TJ3Duncan or at Dana W. Duncan. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM. 